It's good to see everyone made it here this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 19. This is obviously a little bit of a a detour, at least a difference from what we had been doing over the past several weeks, spending time in the Gospels. But we're going to look at, I think, a familiar passage. If it's not something that we read frequently, it's at least a story that we know and is known even in the, the wider culture. So, if you want to turn to Genesis 19. I can remember my grandmother telling me several times, especially when I was a a kid, a young man, you keep talking like that, you keep acting like that, you are going to end up like the Poston boys. And that was meant to induce a chill in my heart that the last thing I wanted to do was act in such a way that I would end up like the Poston boys. Now, the Postons were a family that lived uh, basically catty corner across the street from my grandparents in, in a little town in central Texas. And they were a family of some means, and, and, and the parents were nice enough. But the boys, as you might gather, were kind of on the spectrum that leaned toward being dirtbags. They were constantly in trouble. Lots of arrests. In fact, one of the first times, maybe it was the very first time I can remember uh, going into a courtroom was for the trial of one of the Poston boys. And it was a trial that involved uh, some alcohol, a car, public property, and a fire. Um, And so it it did not go well for that Poston boy. And so they were, anecdotally, the Poston boys were a sign of bad news, trouble, things falling apart. In the Bible, Sodom, city of Sodom, the people of Sodom, are the Poston boys for God's people. They are an example of uh, those who maybe have a lot, a lot of resources, privileges, but they end up wicked, rebellious, troublemakers, and it kind of ends up bad for them. And they really stand as a warning for when the wheels come off the wagon, uh, This is what happens, and it's a warning for God's people. Now, as we think about the city of Sodom, as we think about this story in Genesis 19 of Sodom, uh, maybe you hear a reference to Sodom, and your first instinct is to just kind of tune it out. Uh, I don't want to hear about Sodom. Whenever prudes or fundies want to get geared up about something, they uh, start dropping the Sodom bomb. They start calling people Sodom, Gomorrah. Right, and so I just, I really don't want to hear that. Or, you think about this passage that we're about to read, and you think, this picture is an angry God. That is not a God of love. That is not a God of peace. This is really what I just want to push away from. I don't want to have anything to do with this fire and brimstone. That is not love. That is not my mojo. Or, maybe you hear it and think, yes, let me get some popcorn. This is awesome. I want to hear a lot more about Sodom and Gomorrah because we live in times of Sodom and Gomorrah. And maybe you think, whenever I say Sodom and Gomorrah, of places in our culture that seem to be slouching toward that, whether it be cities like D.C. or Vegas or L.A. or Beaverton or wherever, you think God needs to let it rain, fire and brimstone on them. Well, this passage shows us 
why Sodom is Sodom, why they are the postin boys of Scripture. But it's also meant to teach us, even to call us to respond as Christians, to individually and as a congregation, to God's righteousness, to His justice, how to live in the midst of a temptation and challenge as Christians who are trying to follow Christ in a world that does not fully embrace or even partially embrace the good news. And ultimately, it steers us toward having hope in Christ for His grace and holiness. So I'm going to read. It's a longer passage. You can just listen or you can follow along. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 19, but just by way of reminder, at the very end of chapter 18, you remember there's this famous back and forth, almost this debate, this coaxing on the part of Abraham because God has said he is angry at Sodom and Abraham says, well look, what if you find 50 people there who are righteous, will you spare it? God says, yeah, 40, 30, 20, on down to 10. And God said, if I find 10 righteous in Sodom, I will spare it. And so that sets the stage for where we are in verse 1, chapter 19. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we're going to spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do anything to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men, talking about the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now jumping to verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, 
And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His help these next few minutes. Lord, this is a passage of Scripture, very ancient, and at least on the edges, familiar to us. But we pray that it would come to us not simply as a text of terror, something that uh, shocks us, gives us revulsion, gives us incredulity but rather gives us instead faith. Indeed, wakes us up perhaps from our stupor, gives us a larger sense, a larger perspective on who you are. Maybe some of us hear this passage this morning and think, this is exactly why I don't come to church regularly or why I want to have anything to do with this God. But I pray that you would speak in the hearing, in in, in the reading of this passage, and even in the preaching past our biases, our dispositions to, that would disincline us to hear you. We need your help for this, and we appeal to you, God of mercy, to help us in this. In your name we pray, for your sake, amen. Okay, so why does God destroy? Why does God judge Sodom? Is it just that he is short-tempered? impatient, angry, is it he's this, the, the, the desert sky God that some of the new atheists talk about? Well, it's not that at all. Remember in chapter 18, from maybe from your own reading of chapter 18, and what I prefaced earlier before I read, that God had already told Abraham that the cries of injustice had come up to him about how Sodom and Gomorrah ordered their affairs, how they treated people in the city, and that the people who were oppressed were crying out to God. All right, so he, there was already a backstory of God hearing this and knowing about this. And then later on, we have um, biblical reflection in Ezekiel 16. We learn more about the kind of injustice that God had been hearing about. Listen to this in verses 49 and 50 of Ezekiel 16. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. They were proud and did an abomination before me. So God hears this. And then he goes to see. He sends two messengers, and I think our our translation talks about, uh, calls them angels. So these two men, these two angels go to Sodom, and there is this cat named, not a real cat, but this dude, Lot. And Lot is a nephew, he is a relative of Abraham. 
Earlier in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Lot had been traveling together. Lot knew that Abraham was blessed and sent out by God, but eventually there became this conflict. And so Lot decides to go his own way. He picks back up in the story here. Lot is in the city of Sodom. In fact, it says that he is at the city gates. Now, we might just think he's hanging out at the the entrance sign of the city, but that actually means if you're at the city gates that he had climbed his way up socially in terms of status to be an elder of the city, someone who's supposed to be a mover, a shaker, someone with influence. All right, so Lot, the nephew, the relative of Abraham, sees these guys, they come in, he greets them, he shows them hospitality, offers them food, a place to stay, a warm welcome. The rest of the city, however, not so much. In fact, the city folks, after Lot takes the, the um, two angels to his house, and he probably doesn't know they're angels at this point, um, the folks from the city go to the house, not to greet these folks, not to welcome them, not to help them, but to harm them, to humiliate them. Our translation says to know them, but that's just a very common way. And in this context, it means they were going to sexually assault these people. See, Sodom was known at this time, obviously, as a place where strangers and aliens in particular were not welcome. And in fact, if they showed up, they were going to be abused like this. They were going to be scorned as a warning to others. Don't show up in our city gates. You are not welcome. Do not come here. We don't like your kind. Non-Sodomites. So they were very much afraid of aliens. They were afraid of strangers. So in short, God heard that Sodom was unjust, that they were unwelcoming, and that they were violent about it. He saw it. He sent someone. Sodom proved it with the attempted assault on these angels with God's people. Now notice... God is just in His judgment. It seems like a really harsh judgment. Sulfur, flames coming from the sky, but God is just in His judgment. In fact, He's not rash. He's not ignorant. He knows what's going on in the hearts and the practices of the people in Sodom. And actually, the point of this passage, or at least one of the themes of this passage, is God is shown to be patient. He even listens to Abraham who's begging. Can you imagine Abraham defending the city when he he says, please have mercy. If you even find ten people, will you have mercy? And God says, sure, if there are ten righteous. Turns out there weren't ten righteous in the city. But if there are ten righteous, I will spare them. It's important for us to note this because we we, we sing songs about this God and it's important for us to, to fill this understanding of who God is with content. As Creator... When God sees ruin, when He sees rebellion brought against the world, against those made in His image, He shows care by His judgment. And that His anger is not always the opposite of love. In fact, God's anger is never the opposite of love. It's never indifferent. There is not a... In fact, there, there is... Um, well, it, it's never this moral laziness... Listen to what this one um, author, Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian at Yale. He survived, you remember maybe in the 90s, whenever um, there was a war going on in the former Yugoslavia, he was 
Serbian, and so he saw genocide and he saw violence going on. And he's at Yale where there's a, a proliferation of kind of a, a liberal theology that says that because God is, is kind of a pacifist, God is not involved in the world, then we really can't be involved either. We want to be pacifists. We want to be nonviolent. And this ticks him off a little bit. Listen to what he says, that violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. But then listen to this, and this is speaking out of his own experience. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea this idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And then here's the takeaway. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. In other words, we need to believe and understand that the God who exists does care about the world and will execute judgment. Not because we think he's horrible, but because we see what kind of love he has. He hates injustice as well. And very often, whenever we say we want uh, a God of peace, a God of love, there's a sense in which we don't mean that. We say we want God to preserve the status quo for us because our lives are good and comfortable and nice. But instead, what Scripture invites us to see is to look for God to be both patient, but also righteous and just. Because things are not today and really haven't been since the garden the way they're supposed to be. We need a God who cares and to be involved and to bring judgment, even a severe judgment. So that's the first thing as we're thinking about this passage. But the second thing that this passage invites us to do is not just to reflect on the character of God, a God who loves so much so that He brings justice, but also to look back on ourselves. Because the Sodom story challenges us. It calls us as Christians to look at our own hearts, our basic commitments of living in the world. Now let's think about Lot for a second, okay? In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes Lot how? says, Lot is righteous. says, Lot was greatly distressed by the conduct of, so of Sodom. says that he was tormented. And again, that he was uh, good and just. Now let's be honest. I think I would want Peter to write the biography, of my biography, right? Because this is a very gracious reading of, of Lot's life. We would not necessarily read 19 and think, this guy is great. This is someone that I would want to put in charge of things. Lot does show care for the two men, the two angels that were sent from God. He does show hospitality. He does show concern for safety. But let's be honest. He's living in Sodom. He is spiritually dull. And I would suggest even morally stupid, though righteous, okay? Because think about it. This is a guy who had got to the city gates. He was supposed to have some kind of influence, but when push came to shove, how did he use his influence? Well, he didn't have really any meaningful influence. He couldn't keep the men from, of Sodom from attacking his guests. 
He couldn't get his own son-in-laws to leave the city when the angel said, guys, you got to load up. And he can't even decide for sure where to go, what to do. The angels literally have to drag him by the hand to get the heck out. So he doesn't have influence, okay? But he also makes bad decisions, even morally bad decisions. Think about this. This is really one of the more disturbing chapters or pieces of, of, of um, Scripture in the Bible. It says that as this violent mob is amassing at his door, it says that he offers his daughter to them in place of the strangers. Now to us, this seems incredible. It seems stupid. And it should. There's a sense in which we're being invited to participate in this moral drama that's, being, uh, that, that's unfolding here in Genesis 19. And let me just tell you this, especially if maybe this is the first time you've heard this. The Bible is not saying that Job's decision, not, not Job, but Lot's decision here is okay. There are many things that happen in the Bible that are just described and they're not affirmed. It's not giving us an example to model or to follow. Instead, what it's asking us to do is to, look at our, to look first at Lot, but then to look at ourselves. It's saying, look, look at how dull, how compromised, how worldly Lot has become. His intentions for the strangers are right, but his actions are horrible. Almost tragic. He just doesn't know which way to go. And this whole trajectory of Lot's life, especially as he, I think it's in chapter 14 after he leaves Abraham, is one where it just kind of falls apart. His life, his thoughts just kind of get sideways and compromised once he no longer walks with God's anointed. And so the question this begs of us is this. Do we, do you, have your heart, your loves, your sense of justice shaped by God in Scripture? Or have you just kind of melted in to the world around you? Have we just kind of melted in to the world around us where the, the, the values and the sentiment of the world is just kind of what we have adopted and we kind of sprinkle a few Bible verses on top and we just call that grace. You see, the challenge for us as Christians has always been, we're called to be in the world. We're not called to retreat, but not to be of the world. We're supposed to model Christian conviction and Christian practices in the midst, in some ways in which we're cutting against the grain, where we're swimming upriver against the tide of the culture in which we live in. I think there's two different ways that this bears out, and this is historical. We're, we're either going to be struggling to um, be faithful or we'll, we'll fall into the ditch of legalism, right? Where we just kind of make up a bunch of rules and say this is the way that God wants us to live. Great example, First uh, Timothy chapter 4. What happens in First Timothy chapter 4? It says these things have the appearance of wisdom, forbidding certain foods, not getting married, uh, and just, you know, really being dedicated and bearing down for the Lord. But then Paul hears that and says, these rules sound great. They sound like you're aiming for holiness. But you know where they come from? Satan. Satan. Because you're forgetting the grace of God. You're forgetting the fact that the world is open to you. And so there's one ditch that we can go into of legalism, of wanting to set up rules by which that's the ladder that we climb 
to be right with God. And so that's one way to avoid being worldly. But then the other one is this kind of fatalistic view of liberty. We're like, you know what? We are free in Christ. I am justified. I am forgiven. And there's a sense in which anything goes. And what that really means is we just kind of get very comfortable, especially if we have comfortable middle-class lives, of being indifferent and inactive toward the stranger, the poor, the alien. And we just say, you know what? God will take care of them. But that's not on me. And we're indifferent. So the question then, if we don't want to fall in either of these ditches, if we don't want to be compromised, but rather we want to live a faithful life, not going one side or the other, how do we find renewal? How do we find our identity and courage to live graciously, to live justly, to live holy? Look at verse 29. God remembered Abraham. You see, Lot was righteous and he found favor. He found deliverance because of God's commitment to his relative. Because of God's commitment in his word to Abraham. And you see, in this passage and through so much of the Old Testament, especially as the New Testament reflects on the Old Testament, Abraham pictures for us the fullness of all the gospel promises that are realized in Jesus Christ. In fact, Galatians says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. That He is the one to whom everything that had been promised to, uh, to Abraham is now realized in Christ by His life, death, and resurrection. So how do we grow in renewal? First, we remember how God's grace came to us. And how did God's grace came to us? We need to remember, and this kind of puts us on a level field with everyone, all the sodomites, so to speak, that it was us, all of us individually, who rejected God's messenger. We rejected Christ. God sent His Son, one like us in the flesh, to bring His kingdom, to show His grace, to bring His mercy. In fact, John 1 says that He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Instead, we treated Jesus how? Very much like these sodomites treated the angels as a stranger, as an alien, as an intruder, and we rejected Him. And how did we reject Him? With a violent assault, even to the point of death. Who were the sodomites? We were the sodomites. We cast Jesus out. And yet, here is the astounding, the crazy but true good news. That while we were yet enemies, while we were still in our sins, the one that we assaulted and killed was raised for our justification. Was raised so that we would no longer be enemies, but then we would be called friends. Sons of the Most High God. He made us His friends. So that's the starting point, that God's grace came even to us. And that should infect and overflow into and out of our hearts. And because He has made us, who were once His enemies, His friends, we now have vital living union with Him by the Holy Spirit. And in Him, by faith, 
We have His power. We have His grace. We have His renewal. We have His hope. All of these blessings and benefits that that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. You are in Christ. You are of the seed of Abraham by faith in Christ. And now there is no condemnation. You are as righteous as Jesus. You are as sanctified as Christ. You share in His very holiness. It is not one degree less. It is fully the same. That is who you are. And while He could have destroyed us and poured out His sulfurous wrath, He instead did that on His Son so that we might be rescued. And not just given a city, but a whole world. And you see, this doesn't let us off the hook, but it gives us the resources for understanding who we are. That our life is found in Christ and our direction for how it is that we live in this world, how it is that we live against the grain, is given for us to live out in community and direction by the Scriptures. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are free indeed. We are free not for ourselves, not to simply indulge the flesh, but rather free for the sake of righteousness. You have freed us from bondage to sin, from our hatred toward You, toward others. And because we have received Your welcome, we now have that same opportunity to extend the welcome to others in Christ's name. Would You please, by Your grace, by Your Spirit, as you hear our prayers, have this be more so in our lives than even when we walked in here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please.